Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. This fall, we are opening up the letter of 1 John. We believe it is a timely book in the life of the church. John is writing to a church that is divided over theological differences and confusion about how to follow Jesus in the midst of division. John's answer is love. God's love for us is immeasurable, and so our love for one another should be as well. It's a call to unity and care for one another in the midst of division. We're glad that you've joined us for this series. If you are interested in attending in person, our weekend services happen every week on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30 a.m. A couple of months ago, I read an article that has stuck with me and quite honestly has troubled me. I've given it uh, a lot of thought. It was called the fracturing of American evangelicalism. In the article, the author argues that the way that we have processed certain cultural moments is really rending, rending the fabric of America and the church. And he mentions things like Colin Kaepernick or the Confederate monuments or George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, COVID, serious problem or overblown or Trump or Biden or someone else or abstain. January 6, 2021. Maybe you have felt some of the tension those cultural moments have caused in our culture because you see it in your family or your friendships or some of the groups you're involved or your community or even the tension it's caused in church, in the community of faith. Tim Darrymple, the president and CEO of Christianity Today, has been observing the same thing. And he, he writes this, he says, new fractures are forming within the American evangelical movement. Fractures that do not run along the usual regional denominational ethic or political lines. Couples, families, friends, and congregations, once united in their commitment to Christ, are now dividing over seemingly irreconcilable views of the world. In fact, they are not merely dividing, but becoming incomprehensible to one another. Can you relate? What is secondary has become primary, and we have lost our way a bit when it comes to understanding what is important. We are allowing um, our political positions to form our identity rather than the fact that we are children of God. It seems at times that the value and importance of unity has fallen to the wayside. For many now, fellowship is based more on uh, politics and political identity rather than a common allegiance to Jesus. And this is true uh, for people on the right and for people on the left. Both sides are equally responsible. And anger and irritation seems to be more common than tolerance and love. And at least among pastors I know, there seems to be an absence of joy. This last couple years has been a tough time to do ministry. 
I was on the uh, app I have on my phone called Nextdoor. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's comments from the community in which you live. And a lady posted there that she would like some friends to have dinner with and good conversation and fellowship. And then she uh, had a list of the kind of person you had to be, the political convictions you had to share, the values you had to embrace. It's like she wanted community with clones, people just like her. She said, if you're this kind of person, then we would love to have you as friends and invite you to dinner. And by implication, she was saying, if you're not, we want nothing to do with you. I guess in a community at large, that's acceptable. But it should not be that way in the church. We are to focus more on what unites us than what divides us. And by the way, I have to admit to you, I am not exempt from all this. I get frustrated with those who see the world differently than I do, um, who have come to different conclusions and convictions. And at times, I find it really easy to write them off. And I want you to know, that's wrong. I'm wrong when I do that. You know, at Waterstone, we have had this conviction from the start. Uh, we referred to it as agreeing to disagree. It was the notion that as a community of faith, we would agree to agree on certain core convictions that were central beliefs of the Christian faith. Things like uh, the reality and death of the resurrection of Jesus, the authority of scripture, salvation by grace, the deity of Christ, the return of Jesus. We would agree to agree on those and then everything else was to be secondary. If it wasn't in our doctrinal statement, then we could agree to disagree. And we expected and accepted the fact that people would hold different views and different convictions and those were important and we needed to talk about those and wrestle with those. But the conviction was is we would not let those secondary issues divide our fellowship, our community. Because our fellowship wasn't based on that. that conviction of agreeing to disagree, I think, has been challenged in significant ways. Well, the passage we're looking at this morning, I think, gives us the only solution, um, the only antidote we have for a moment like this. I think it's the only way out of the fracturing conflict and disunity. It's simply this. We need to get far better at loving one another. We're going to take a look at this, this passage this morning from the third chapter of John, 1 John. And I think it reorients us when it comes to loving one another and loving others. And I want you to know at the start, I think this is one of the most challenging passages in the New Testament. And if, if we get out of here without being personally convicted, I'm not sure we're listening very well. I mean, some of us may think uh, we have this area all together. And if you're one of those people, I want to tell you you're wrong. <laughs> right? Because we're never good enough lovers. We can always be better. 
And what is interesting, though, the passage not only is designed to convict us, but at the end, I think John also wants to encourage us. So I want you to listen for that. So we're going to look at three key aspects of this priority of love. The priority of love, the nature of love, and the result of love. So let's look at the priority of love first. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. John is saying, you know, this, this challenge to love each other has always been the priority of the Christian life. And to understand why he's saying that, you need to put it into its historical context. John is writing to a church where people who are known as Gnostics have invaded. And, and to a Gnostic, what was important in their faith wasn't so much love. What was important to their faith was this secret knowledge that they had to have and this mystical kind of experience. And that knowledge and experience became kind of foundational and they were the way they measured their godliness and their spirituality as if they had those. In a sense, they were saying, no, those two things are, are, are really the, the markers of genuine faith. And John is saying, no, 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 that, that is not the case. That is not the foundation. He's reminding them that at the core of their faith, the thing that they had heard from the very beginning, in fact, chapter 2, earlier in the book, he has said this. This is the command you have always heard from the very start. What's foundational is our responsibility to love one another. That's the bottom line. Loving one another is what's absolutely essential. It's not secondary and it's not optional. Kind of like when you go buy a car. There are things that are essential and things that are options. It's really nice to have leather seats. They're great. But a steering wheel is more important. It's really great to have a moonroof. But nobody wants a car that doesn't have an engine. When it comes to our faith, there's lots of things that we give importance but nothing is as important as us becoming great lovers. We are to love one another, and that's the foundation. And that foundation is a reflection of the fact that God loves us because he does. We are to love each other. Now, I want to make a comment here, and this is important. In this passage, the primary focus is on loving one another. He says that we are to love our brothers and sisters in the community of faith. But I want you to know that, that John is not trying to be tribal here. He is not saying, hey, our responsibility is to, to love each other, and that's the extent of the, the command. No, no, no. He's saying, no, we're to love like God loves. God loves the world. So that's the ultimate goal is for us to love the world. But... We begin that by loving those within the fellowship. And then that love we have for each other extends to others. And Jesus says, you know what? That even extends to our enemies. So there's nothing here that lets us off the hook to loving the other or those outside. He's just arguing we won't get there if we can't even love each other. We can't love within the fellowship. There are no boundaries on who we are responsible to love. We are to love every human being, no matter race or ethnicity or nationality or tribe or religion or color of skin. 
they all fall within our obedience to love. Love is to start in our community and extend to the world. So I've been reflecting on this. I, I've been wrestling with what we want people to experience and then say about Waterstone Community Church. I mean, what do we want our reputation in the community to be? What do we want people to value? What do we want people to experience when they come to Waterstone? And people say all kinds of things. Sometimes, some people say, you know, the worship was awesome. Or, or, you know, that building is great. They really use it to reach the community. Or the children's ministry is just fantastic. Or the preaching is excellent. You know, I, I hope people say all those things. I mean, those are not bad things. They're, they're good. But they are not what matters most. I mean, what I really want people to say about our church is that Waterstone is a place where people really love one another. And it is a church that has really loved me. A place that makes the love of God real to its world. That's what I want them to say. And it's interesting, as I've been reflecting on this, not only do I want that to be true about our church, I want that to be true about every one of us as well. That what people notice about us is that we're people who love. You know, over the years, I've done a lot of funerals, and when I do a funeral, I really try to, to capture the essence of the person who has passed away, and, and that gets talked about in the service. And it's made me, made me think about what I want people to say at my funeral. And I've learned over the years that the people who come from a funeral, they really don't care how much money you made. They couldn't care less about how successful you were or famous or what kind of leader you were or how big your business was or, I mean, that's nice, <laughs> but they don't really care. Do you know what they care about? They care about whether or not you love them. And that's what they're thinking about. And that's what matters. That's what I want people to say. I'm not sure they will. But that's what you want people to say. That, that man was a great lover. And he loved me. And that's what counts. So if love is the, the foundation, the key issue then the question becomes, and it's a critical question, what, what does love, this kind of love really look like? And John kind of explains this to us through example. Um, and the example is Jesus. First John chapter three, verse 16, he writes this. And in this verse, he gives us the example and the challenge, right? This is how we we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. In other words, John is saying, if you really want to understand love, what you need to do is look at the cross. 
Because Jesus didn't tell us that he loved us. He showed us that he loved us. And he did it by laying down his life and sacrificing everything. The, the verb here for laid down is the Greek verb tithemi. And it describes literally a setting aside of something, such as a garment, divesting yourself of something, um, like taking off your coat. It implies the setting aside of something that is precious and personally valued. It implies a setting aside of rights. Think about what Jesus experienced in laying down his life and the sacrifice he went through. In those last hours before his death, he suffered a mockery of justice, was slapped in the face and had a crown of thorns uh, uh, pressed onto his head. He was beaten with a rod. He was hit with fists. He was, well, he had his back ripped open with a whip. He then was made to carry his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem, facing this incredible humiliation and shame. In the crucifixion itself, the pain was unbelievable. Bruised flesh, loss of blood, muscle cramps, dehydration, incredible thirst and hunger, exhaustion. More physical pain than you can imagine. And then put on top of that the emotional and spiritual pain and sacrifice on the cross. He became the sin bearer, crushed under the burden of our guilt. And he did all of that. He put his own interests aside and his own rights aside and his own privileges and comfort aside for us. That's the example. That's what love is. And then John makes that the challenge, right? He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. In other words, how Jesus treated us is how we should treat one another. We must be willing to do for others what Jesus has done for us. We ought to be willing to lay down our lives for each other because that's what Jesus has done. And if you think about that for a moment, you go, well, well that, that's kind of extreme. And that's the point, right? If we're willing to do that for each other, then we'll be, well, everything else will be a piece of cake, right? It's like borrowing money from a bank. If I go to the bank and I qualify for a half million dollar loan, then getting the bank to give me a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or 10,000, that's no problem. John is saying we should be willing to go to the wall for each other, give the ultimate sacrifice, and then if we're really willing to do that, then the rest should be a piece of cake, being kind, tolerant, respectful, helpful, compassionate, understanding, patient, unselfish, forgiving. That should be no problem. So, how do we turn this example and challenge into a working definition? Because I think we need that to make it a little more applicable to our lives. I mean, let's be quite honest. There's not too many times I'm going to ask, be asked to lay down my life for you. Not too many times you're going to be asked to lay down your life for me. <laughs> That's the extreme. 
So what does this look like in everyday life? So I tried to come up with a working definition on how this all figured out, and then I ran across a quote by C.S. Lewis, and I liked his definition far more than my definition, so I decided to use it. Love is unselfishly choosing for another's highest good. In other words, love constantly seeks God's best for others, even at the expense of oneself. True love pays any price for the one loved. It stands ready to sacrifice everything or take on great personal risk for the benefit of others. I think it is helpful to break this down into some characteristics and try to do that. Let me give you four characteristics that I think is true about this kind of love. The first is that it's volitional. You know, our, our culture tends to center love in the emotions. Our culture is infatuated with this notion uh, that love is a feeling and, and that that feeling drives most of our lives and is the ultimate good we all want. But it's interesting to me that biblical love is not centered in the feelings. Biblical love is centered in the will. In other words, it's something you choose to do. It's a choice. It's a decision, an act of the will. And that means it's not grounded in sentiment or feeling. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that love doesn't involve feeling and emotion uh, and that those are not involved. I think they are involved and almost all the time are involved. But they're not the core issue. We are commanded to love others whether we feel like it or not. And we always have the choice to make. So, well, wait a second. Are you telling me that if I choose to act lovingly towards somebody, even if I don't feel like I love them, that's what I'm supposed to do? That's what I'm telling you. You're saying, but isn't that disingenuous? Isn't that inauthentic? Isn't, aren't I being a fake and a hypocrite if I'm acting loving towards you even though that's not what I feel? And my answer to that is no, not at all. We do that all the time if we know how to love. Well, let me give you an example. If you have kids, there came a time in your life when your kid was like, two months old, and you were sound asleep, and it's three o'clock in the morning, and the baby begins to cry. And your spouse reaches over and pushes you and says, go get the kid. <laughs> and at that moment, what are you feeling? You're feeling, I have no emotional need to go get that kid. I don't want to, I'm gonna sleep, I don't care. In fact, you start thinking to yourself, right, it would be disingenuous and inauthentic, and I would be a hypocrite if I get my rear end out of bed and go get the kid. That wouldn't be love. What do you do? You love the kid, so you get out of bed whether you want to or not, whether you feel like it or not, and get out of the kid and bring it back. And when you do, and it, you hand it to your, hand it, hand the child. <laughs> To your spouse, your spouse doesn't say, boy, you're such a fake. <laughs> no. No. Look, if you think that feeling always has to drive the relationship you're in, it won't last. And it's not hypocrisy to keep a relationship going even when the feelings are not there.
Second, not only is this love volitional, it's sacrificial. In other words, love is willing to give of itself, and by its nature, it costs. And the notion is that love means, at its very core, setting aside your rights and your privileges for the sake of others. Because it's not focused on what you want, or your desires, or your rights, but on the needs of those around you. Let me drive this home a little bit. Our culture, because we're so individualistic, has made personal liberty and personal autonomy absolute values. And we think nobody has the right to tell us what to do. And nobody has the right to restrict my freedom. Folks, let me be honest with you. For the Christian, a person committed to following Jesus Christ, personal freedom is not the greatest good. It's not an absolute value for the believer. And some would argue, and they may be right, that it's not even a primary concern of value in the Scriptures. At the heart of our faith is this notion that we are to be like Jesus who set aside his rights and his personal liberty and his personal autonomy for the sake of others and the common good, for the sake of the world. That's what Jesus did. He laid down his life for the world. And that's what we are supposed to do. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3. Three and four brings this home. He says, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You know, this value of setting aside our rights for the sake of the common good gets expressed in our legal system and expressed in our community. In fact, it's one of the foundational principles our laws are based on. We limit people's freedom when it endangers, when their freedom endangers others. That's why we tell people you can't drive 90 miles an hour down bowls. We have these things called speed limits. And those speed limits infringe upon your personal liberty. Why? Because if you express your personal liberty to go 90 miles an hour down bowls, you're endangering other people. And that means we, in our decisions, decide to do what's good, not simply for us, but we lay aside our rights for the sake of others and the community, for the common good. That's what it means to love. And I know, I get it. Okay, I get it. That's frustrating. We don't like anybody telling us what to do. After all, we're Americans. Right? Freedom. I love my freedom. But Jesus called me to something higher. To set aside my freedom and my rights because I'm to be a person who above all else loves others.
that's the gospel. So this love is volitional, it's sacrificial. Third, it's active. Love is not simply an attitude or a feeling or a conviction you have. It, it has to translate into concrete behavior. Love may start with your attitude and your emotions, but ultimately has to be played out in your life. And what that means is that genuine love can be measured. Don't tell me you're a loving person or that you love or have love in your heart. Show me by what you do. And if you do nothing, then it raises the question, are you really loving? Because love gets measured by action. I, mean, I see this work in my marriage. I mean, I can tell Barb I love her. That's a good thing to do. She really appreciates it. She tells me I could do it more. <laughs> but if I never translate that into behavior, if I never serve her, if I never am kind to her, if I don't listen, if I don't put her needs above my own, if I'm not sensitive and caring, my pronouncements of love ring hollow. Last, it's volitional, sacrificial, active. And love is to be a virtue. The command that we are to love one another back in verse 11, that, that Greek word is in the present tense. And thus, it, it, in the present tense, it's calling for a continuous display of love. In other words, the command is not for us to periodically love one another, to, but that to be true of us all the time. And what I'm suggesting here, that love is actually more than a choice, more than an action. If that is all love is, then it can come and go, right? I can choose to love at sometimes and not to love at others, and do things at sometimes and not at others. But, but we're called to something more than that. We are called to be loving people, to, to uh, make love the pattern and habit of our lives so that love becomes the habit of our heart and a quality that defines us. And when it becomes a quality defines us, that's a virtue. Christian doctrine calls it a virtue, this enduring pattern of feeling and thought and choice and action that characterizes us as a human being. And when that happens, then love becomes a virtue, this habitual pattern, and it becomes thus, because it's a quality that's dependent on us, not those outside of us, it becomes the way we treat everyone. Not just our family, not just our friends, not just our tribe, but how we treat whoever God brings into our path. It even becomes the way we treat our enemies. And that kind of behavior becomes a great indication of whether or not we have the virtue. So here's the problem, right? The problem is most of us, for the most part, think we're pretty loving people, right? Uh, I mean, seldom does anyone come to me and say, you know, my problem in my Christian life is I just don't love people. Actually, that's never happened. Because we, we think, you know, we're not perfect, but we try. I think oftentimes we identify with the person who said, you know, I love humanity. It's uh, people I can't stand. In other words, we're great in the abstract. It just gets dicey when it gets to the concrete. 
So what John does, he gives us a little test that helps us evaluate the genuineness of our love. And it's a convicting test, right? Verses 17 and 18. If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. The word here, pity, is really interesting. In the Greek, it literally means to shut. To shut. And it's a metaphor for shutting off the compassion in your heart when you see somebody in desperate need. It's reminded of the to- story Tony Campolo tells. He's in a third world country. He's at breakfast at a nice restaurant. He's sitting by a window. And as he's eating his steak and eggs, little street urchins who are poor and starving come and start looking in the window at him. And it gathers this little crowd. And he's feeling really uncomfortable. The waiter sees what's going on, comes over. And you know what he does? Pulls down the shade so Tony doesn't have to see the need outside. That's what this word describes. When we see people in desperate need and we simply pull down the shade. John is saying, look, when you see somebody who's desperate, somebody who's struggling, somebody in need, it's to move your heart to compassion. And if we simply shut ourselves off, ignore them, or turn simply away so we don't have to see, then there's a problem. What he's really saying is how we handle our stuff, our material wealth in the context of the poor and needy becomes not only a measure of our heart, if it's filled with compassion or not, but actually becomes a marker of whether or not God's love is in us. I mean, look at the text. He says, uh, um, you have no pity on them. How can the love of God be in that person? He's not saying you're just not having a loving heart. He's saying that begins to question whether you've really ever experienced the love of God. Because his assumption is if you've experienced God's love for you, then the automatic result has to be that you love others. So when was the last time our hearts were moved by the plight of the poor and the desperate? And how do we respond when we see the refugee and the displaced? Does it move us or do we get irritated? No, they want what we have. John is saying that it tells us something about our hearts and the reality of God's love in us. You see, if my life is not marked by love, then it raises the question, do I I really know God? The reality of your faith is not measured by how often you've been baptized or read your Bible or pray or go to worship or how religious you are or how spiritual you sound or how loud you sing or how high you raise your hands in worship. The reality of your relationship with God is shown by your ability to love others. That's it. So we talked about the priority of love, the nature of love. Really quick, let's talk about the results. And this is really interesting to me in verse 19 and 18. 
This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. What he's saying, that this, this loving of one another and loving others is how we know that we belong to the truth. In other words, the marker of the reality of our faith. And he's saying how we see that marker in our lives, when we see it, it sets our heart at rest in his presence. Because it's the marker that says, yeah, my, my relationship with Jesus is real. But if our hearts condemn us, and, and that, you know, there are moments in our lives, folks, when because of our behavior and our lack of faith and our disobedience and our inner feelings and our inner world, we, we wonder if whether we could even be a child of God. And he's saying here that, that in those moments, if you want assurance, then look for glimmers of love in your life. Look for, he's not saying you have to be great at this. He, he's saying even the desire to love others, the attempt to love others, the conviction that you should love others, and if that's in you, if that's the glimmer, then that's a glimmer of God's reality in your life. And that's why he says, even if your heart or your conscience condemns you, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. In other words, that glimmer, that desire, even if it's small to love others, is to be an assurance of our relationship with God. It's to be assurance, an assurance of spiritual life in us. Most of you know that two years ago, my wife, um, developed a staph infection that's seated in her spine. When that happens, you get spinal abscesses and that crushes your spinal cord and causes paralysis. After a week of getting less and less movement, they finally took her into surgery because they finally figured out what it was and they did what's called laminectomy. They relieve pressure in your spine at various spots. We were told that when she went into surgery, that they really didn't know what the result would be. The possibility is that she would never move again or she might get a lot of function back. They didn't know. At the end of the surgery, Barb came out. She had a tube down her throat. She couldn't speak and she could not move anything below her neck. And for the first two weeks or so, she was paralyzed from the neck on down. And I can remember being in the hospital room in Wisconsin when she started to move her toe. And it was a glimmer. It was hope. It was just a little hint that perhaps more would come back. By the way, my wife now most of the time walks with a walker, can feed herself and can groom herself. And this last week she was back at uh, 
occupational therapy at Craig and they were doing tests on her ability, her movements of her legs and arms and they told her there's a good shot that she can drive again. Now I want you to know if that happens, I'm not gonna be in the car or on the road. We need to look for the glimmers in our lives where we're trying to be better lovers because they're the mark of God's love in us. Folks, we are to love others like Jesus has loved us. We'll have our differences. We will have our various convictions. We will have our political positions and identities. And we will hold those strongly but our love for each other and our love for others because of God's love for us must transcend that all. Our allegiance to Jesus and his love for us is what binds us together and challenges us to love one another.